one's called Australia. In spite of the impressive branding work Sir Douglas Mawson worked on Antarctic shores south of Australia, my home nation didn't do much about its reputation in the south in the two decades after the Banzari. I mentioned in a previous episode that Australian diplomat John Cumston urged that Australia send Catalina flying boats south to proceed the Operation High Jump aerial surveying work, but distances and a dearth of safe harbours and a lack of seaplane tenders precluded the Australian government going ahead with any such plan. Instead, the government charged Cumston with making the map I mentioned in that same episode. Cumston buttonholed Mawson, Davis and Casey for leads on whom to turn to for the most up-to-date hydrographic and topographic information, eventually drawing together cartographic input from the Royal Geographic Society, the British Polar Committee, reports arising from the voyage of the Schwabenland and from the USASA and Norwegian whaling interests and Chilean and Argentine publications seeking to do for their own nations what Cumston was charged with doing for his. He passed the accumulated information onto the National Mapping Division of the Department of the Interior, one of the predecessor organisations that eventually folded into the entity we now know as Geoscience Australia. Publishing charts and maps using externally sourced data looked good on paper, and still does, because the cartographers of the day knew their work, as the Cumston map demonstrates, and I'll link to a copy in the show notes. But the Hughes Doctrine of Occupy or Shut the Hell Up took a strong hold among the world's armchair geographers in the years after the Banzari, and the people at the helm of my home nation at the end of the Second World War decided to act to reinforce territorial claims over the parts of Antarctica Mawson sailed along, lived on and fell into, while starving and suffering hypervitaminosis A. Operations High Jump and Windmill propelled a lot of the eagerness, particularly when Richard Evelyn Bird publicly commented that the United States Navy was definitely not looking for uranium deposits, and that the USA definitely wouldn't seek to exploit any uranium deposits the Navy found while not looking for them. Britain, demobbing after half a decade of total war, pockmarked by Nazi bomb craters in all its industrial areas, economically emaciated, operating on fuel rationing until 1950, and with some foods, such as eggs, sugar and meat, remaining rationed until 1954, and shedding empire like it caught the mange, and already stretched to field its fids on the Antarctic Peninsula, petitioned the Australian government to get cracking with some permanent occupation to bolster the British Commonwealth claim on the southern continent. This fit neatly with Mawson's persistent push, kicked into high gear once more by the 62-year-old as the war came to an end, to get Australians on site. The Australian government nominated its elder Antarctican to take part in planning for Australia's future in the far south. Representatives from nine government departments attended the meetings at Victoria Barracks, Melbourne, in December 1946, chaired by William Dunk from the Department of External Affairs. Those in attendance sought a path forward to consolidating international recognition of Australian sovereignty over those sectors of Antarctica Mawson explored, and a plan for developing the resources therein. Mawson, while happily providing factual and practical advice, 
didn't want to see Australia's Antarctic stake developed as a government initiative. He wanted the universities and business interests to take the lead, with on-site mining funding research and locally sourced coal used in smelting more valuable, diggable resources. Previous attempts to kick off volunteer science occupant initiatives and multiple false starts in getting Australian whaling ramped up in Antarctic waters didn't bode well for that tack, and the government, while grateful for his input, frustrated the ageing explorer by ignoring his proposals and opting, instead, for government-led voyages and bases. These two distinct management frameworks converged on the matter of permanently staffed bases on the continent, providing meteorological information and occupying space at the very least. Even Mawson's considerable experience in Antarctica didn't offer any obvious site on which to lay that continental foundation. Cape Denison, while combining the desirable properties of solid rock, known maritime approaches and access to the plateau, already looked pretty Australian as far as international interests went, and the local wind conditions made it a problematic toehold in the cold for the two and a half years the AAE spent there. Mawson nominated Cape Freshfield as a potential starter, but having only seen it from the hinterland during his tragic sledging foray with Xavier Mertz and Belgrave Ninnis, he couldn't vouch for the maritime approaches. He proposed the Royal Australian Air Force make an aerial reconnaissance using an Avro Lincoln four-engine maritime reconnaissance aircraft, an aftermarket adaptation of the bomber that derived from the Lancaster and immediately preceded the dedicated maritime patrol development of the same wing, the Avro Shackleton. I should mention here that with the economy fucked and much of its manufacturing infrastructure damaged during the war, the British aviation industry plugged along for a long time using the same machinery and techniques as it applied to making aircraft during the war. While plane makers in the USA retooled for the jet age, companies like Avro and Hawker de Havilland made do with old factories and tools, leading to a lot of wartime designs or elements of those designs carrying forward for many years. In this instance, the sturdy and easy-to-manufacture wing of the Lancaster went on flying in the Shackleton until 1991, and the same wing also served in the Avro Tudor airliner and the Armstrong Whitworth Argosy freighter, which fellow residents of Melbourne, of my vintage or older, may remember whistling overhead in their canary yellow IPEC livery, propelled by their horrendously noisy Rolls-Royce Dart engines. The distances involved in flying from Australia to Antarctica placed even the longest long-range version of the Lincoln on a very shaky flight plan so the meeting attendees moved that the Royal Australian Navy head south to make the investigation from lower down, but with longer legs. Australian bureaucracy isn't known for moving quickly, but three weeks after the meeting, the government authorised a naval voyage to determine where Australia should set up its Antarctic base. And that's as far as the project moved that year, because the only naval vessel capable of sailing among ice flows lay alongside a wharf on the Torrens River in Adelaide, paid off and serving as a training vessel for the Sea Scouts. After the Australian Federal Government purchased the Wyatt Earp from Lincoln Ellsworth and refused to let Sir Hubert Wilkins loose with it on Mawson's advice, the Navy, unable to think of any other purpose to turn the small wooden boat and its hot bulb diesel engine to, tasked the renamed Wangala with hauling explosives around the Australian coast. Recommissioned Royal Australian Navy Service 
the Wangala required a new engine and a lot of new timbers and corking before it stood as seaworthy, let alone iceworthy. So those involved accepted the 1946-47 Austral Summer as a lost cause for Antarctic projects, and set their sights on the 1947-48 one. While the Antarctic coast lay outside the range of Royal Australian Air Force resources, they did begin asserting something approaching Australian managerial aegis over the Southern Ocean south of Australia in 1947, as a direct result of the December 1946 committee meetings in Melbourne. On the 13th of March, an RAAF B-24 Liberator departed Pierce Air Base near Perth, carrying a civilian meteorologist to 46 degrees south to gather weather data. On the 14th, another Liberator departed Laverton Air Base near Melbourne to reach 52 degrees south, also carrying a civilian meteorologist to make met obs. These flights ran preparatory to the RAAF sending a modified Avro Lincoln south to overfly Macquarie Island and to make an aerial photographic survey of the one Antarctic territorial claim site Australia could reach that year. The Avro Lincoln required extensive modifications to make the 14-hour round trip, including fairing in the former defensive turrets to improve aerodynamics, and fitting long-range fuel tanks in the Bombay to hold an additional 800 gallons of avgas. The Lincoln departed Point Cook Air Base, also near Melbourne, on the 15th, with the Catalina flying boat on standby in Hobart for search and rescue duties in case anything went awry during the mission. After covering more than 2,000 nautical miles during 14 hours airborne, the Lincoln returned bearing 239 aerial survey images of the Macquarie Island coast, and flight data on the performance of the airframe at lower temperatures than Lincoln's previously experienced, and insights on aircrew clothing for future southern forays, and a load more met obs. Meteorologists, excited by the forecasting possibilities made available by Southern Ocean Met data, pressed for further flights, but the RAAF mandate for such daring-do expired when the photographers developed their images. Australia knew more about Macquarie Island coasts than any other nation. So there. Further committee meetings chaired by the government's Head of External Affairs, Dr John Burton, saw Mawson's suggested program of a ship-based reconnaissance in the 1947-48 Austral summer, followed up by the establishment of a permanent presence at Cape Freshfield, assuming the maritime approaches proved navigable, adopted. The first fully government-funded Australian expedition began to come into focus. Naval inspectors began looking over the Wangala, near the Wyatt Earp, near the Fjord at an Adelaide dry dock. I read the fact that no one sought John King Davis' insight into the proposed forays until after starting the process of recommissioning the Wangala and its support vessel, a Canadian-built steel-hulled landing ship, tank, LST-3501, for the 1947 voyage, as Mawson's gambit to prevent Davis slowing progress. True to gloomy form, Davis thought both ships unsuited to their tasks, and the time frame too short to get an expedition properly sorted. Davis considered the Wyatt Earp impractical based on its size and the expense required in getting it sea and iceworthy, and deemed the steel-hulled, slab-sided, bluff-bowed landing vessel a poor fit for anything other than the fair-weather voyages it was designed for, a set of circumstances which didn't include Southern Ocean transits. He also thought Cape Freshfield unlikely to prove a useful site. 
He was correct on all fronts, but having not sought his input, the committee belted along without needing to heed his well-informed insights. Davis was, at the time, among the most experienced Antarctic ice pilots alive, and the Australian government's director of maritime navigation, so you'd think he'd be high on the list of people to consult and listen to in such matters. But after their clashes during the Banzari, Mawson knew to keep Davis out of such matters if speed, and not safety or economy, were the emphasis. Pin in that for later, because gloomy and incorrect aren't synonyms. On the 5th of May, the committee nominated Stuart Campbell as expedition leader. Campbell sailed with Mawson during the Banzari as chief pilot for the de Havilland Moth. In the years between Antarctic forays, he worked in aerial surveys of Western Australia, the Great Barrier Reef and New Guinea, while serving as an RAAF flying boat pilot aboard the RAN seaplane tender HMAS Albatross. During the war, he flew Catalinas on mine-laying missions, and he demobbed at the rank of group captain. Working as Director of Air Navigation for the Civil Aviation Authority, the aviation equivalent of John King Davis' maritime position, Campbell didn't relish the opportunity made available to him, and I don't know what motivated him to take the role on, which he did in May 1947. While he expressed contempt for the claiming ceremonies Mawson conducted during the Banzari voyages, he knew what to do to make a claim, and understood that activity as undergirding his new remit. Campbell set up office at the Victoria Barracks, and appointed RAAF storeman George Smith and Clark, Norm Jones, to RAAF No. 1 Stores Depot at the Tottenham Rail Yards, where they began accumulating expedition equipment and materials. The Australian National Antarctic Research Expeditions extended from the Department of External Affairs and its management committee featured representatives of the precursor of the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organisation, the CSIRO, the RAAF and the RAN, making it a typically cumbersome affair of people wanting to stamp their name in the history books without sticking their neck out too far. The RAAF held responsibility for equipment while the RAN took care of Vidling, and the CSIRO was there too. Naval concerns about approaching Cape Freshfield saw the 1947-48 voyage morph into visits to Heard and Macquarie Islands to establish research stations, with a reconnaissance transit along the Antarctic coast. Mawson wasn't happy about the changes, but didn't hold enough clout to get his way in all matters, now the government had its oar firmly in the Inari water. The committee shifted the timeline so that a continental presence within five years became the priority, with aerial reconnaissance of the pertinent coast by an aircraft carried south by the re-renamed Wyatt Earp, determining where the nation might place that presence. Captain Davis reiterated his misgivings about the ships, particularly the LST, but Stuart Campbell, being both an experienced aviator and a twat, responded that the seaworthiness of the Inari vessels lay beyond criticism placing optimism in the face of fates accompli ahead of practical considerations, like so many Antarctic chump stains before him. The committee didn't want the expedition to appear a matter of territorial fence post pissing, which it was, to the point everyone involved kept the Heard Island aspect of the expedition secret, to avoid spurring the USA to occupying the space they felt every bit as much a claimant toward based on early visitations and short-term occupations 
and so began assembling the bare bones of a scientific initiative to piggyback onto the voyages, because science is noble and always acts for the good of all mankind and isn't about uranium mining rights per se. Word went out that the Inari needed a scientific director, and it's at this point that the Ice Coffee narrative introduces a major player in the story of Australia's present involvement in the Far South. Philip Garth Law grew up in country Victoria. He was academic and sporty, and adventures in the bush with his brother set him up as an enthusiastic and capable outdoor type. The Law family, educators to the bone, couldn't afford to send their offspring to university, which is like rain on your wedding day. So Phil went to teach a training college with an eye on teaching science as a means to scratch a scientific itch, inspired by a desire to work out how things work. Opportunities to pick up university classes saw him achieve his master's in science and gradually morph into a physics lecturer at the University of Melbourne. The Second World War arrived and he signed in to the Royal Australian Air Force as a trainee navigation instructor. But his boss at the university physics department seconded him back to the labs to work on optics problems facing Australian forces operating in the tropics. His boss retired and Phil took up the administrative duties while still teaching and working in the lab. Experience that saw him develop skills that he later employed in administering a NARI while keeping an eye on the science and working wonders at educating Australians about Antarctica and their nation's activities there. The head of the University of Melbourne Physics Department, Professor Leslie Martin, part of the Inari committee, mentioned to Phil Law that he needed to find someone to coordinate the science program. Law, studying cosmic rays as one of Martin's PhD students, immediately petitioned for consideration, and Martin, knowing Law's abilities, and seeing a direct path to getting some cosmic ray data out of the South, made the necessary recommendations and sealed the deal. A one-year leave of absence from the university, and a one-year contract as chief scientist under Stuart Campbell. Philip Law started work for Anari in July 1947, and racked his brains as to whom to approach to work on what possible programs to maximise the output of the scientific effort acting as a post-hoc rationalisation for the expeditions. Phil Law also headed up an unofficial university cohort of physics postgraduates, the Cosmic Ray Group, tasked with building and testing the cosmic ray measuring apparatus for the expedition. I need to spend some time discussing cosmic rays at this point, as they feature a lot in coming episodes, as more and more nations got into the science is why we go to Antarctica bandwagon, and cosmic ray measurement constituted a hot physics topic people could add to a scientific schedule for little expense beyond the instruments and wages. No need for expensive traverses or drilling operations. Just pop a physicist in a heated box with their machine that goes bing and let the peer-reviewed papers roll out. For a long time, physicists thought the large number of ionised particles getting about the Earth were the result of radioactive decay among the heavier elements in our rocks. But measurements of ionisation with altitude showed this explanation already weak source in the disparity between present radioactive decay rates and atmospheric concentrations of ions, needed a big rethink. Wait, what are ions? Ions, I-O-Ns, are the electrically charged atoms that make atmospheric or oceanic chemistry so exciting at a molecule level. Inherently unstable and therefore looking to fight or fuck any other amenable chemicals, an inelegant analogy but I'm a biologist, 
ions get a lot of important processes moving. Their positive or negative electrical charge attracts them to their opposite numbers, catalyzing whatever happens next. So physicists were already casting about for alternate explanations for ion concentrations when Austrian physicist Victor Hess took his high-sensitivity electroscope aloft in a balloon in a series of flights, demonstrating repeatedly that ionizing radiation increases with distance from the ground, falsifying the rock-based radioactive decay hypothesis. Something entering the atmosphere from above was doing the bulk of the ionizing hard yards. U.S. physicist Robert Andrews Millikan replicated Hess's findings in 1926 and coined the term cosmic rays for the ionizing culprits on the mistaken idea that the driver lay somewhere in the electromagnetic spectrum. This made sense at the time since gamma rays and x-rays were demonstrably good at ionizing the matter they interacted with. Millikan was wrong, but that didn't stop him from being bloody good at physics and he earned a Nobel Prize for his work on electrical charge and the photoelectric effect. Hess received his Nobel Prize for Physics in 1936 for his work identifying the source of ionization as extraterrestrial. It took some time for the electromagnetic model to fall by the wayside, but by the mid-1930s, observation and experiment demonstrated the culprits weren't photons, but particles, mostly hydrogen nuclei, stripped of their electrons and biffing through space at close to the speed of light, with alpha particles, the helium nucleus equivalent, a distant second place at around 1% or less of the total. Positrons and other bits of matter difficult for the average biologist to think about make up the trace quantities in the mix. Besides carrying their electrical charge with them, the energy of these particles sees them imposing alterations in structure and charge of the particles they interact with as they reach our atmosphere. Most cosmic ray particles on course for our planet don't reach it because the heliosphere around the Sun deflects the bulk of those originating outside our solar system, and Earth's magnetosphere deflects most of those arising in our Sun. But there's enough to go around, and those that do reach our atmosphere do their measurable thing, and that's mostly to our benefit, because that's the framework in which we evolved. Cosmic rays are only really bad news for monkeys when those monkeys leave the magnetosphere and head, say, to the Moon. The sample size is small, but those Apollo astronauts who lived into their dotage do show signs of cell and tissue damage from radiation exposure during their week or so outside the Earth's protective electromagnetic cocoon. At the lower power end of the scale, cosmic rays still carry tens of millions of times more energy than humanity managed to impart to anything of equivalent mass, using the Large Hadron Collider. At the high end of the scale, the numbers get dizzying and people start talking bollocks analogies about baseballs. Cosmic rays are interesting, and the kickoff of Anari coincided with an uptick in humanity's interest in and ability to measure them. So Philip Law was in the right field at the right time to land his dream role, combining as it did adventure and science. David Caro, Ken Hines, Fred Jacker, John Gelbar, John Prescott, and Charles Speedy got to work bringing the cosmic ray instrumentation together while Philip Law set about establishing a hut on Mount Hotham in which to test the equipment at low temperatures. The rush to get the hut built before the winter snows set in saw the Forestry Department building inspector pissed off when a site visit to assess the proposed building layout and aspect revealed the building already finished, but Law played the important science for national pride and uranium card 
and received the necessary construction permits post hoc. In mid-August, the Cosmic Ray Group slogged their instruments through the snow to the hut on pack horses rented from Norwegian expat Eric Johnson, a legendary figure in the Victorian Alps, which is the name we give to the eroded, low-altitude lumps that pass for mountains on the eroded, low-altitude continent I live on. Philip Law learnt to ski in his teens with his brother, and experienced several close shaves due to blizzards and youthful stupidity, so he saw the Cosmic Ray Group through their month-long sojourn without anyone dying or experiencing frostbite, in spite of some close shaves caused by blizzards and postgraduate stupidity. This trip is often cited as a key element in developing the leadership style he employed, very successfully by most accounts, in later years as head of the Inari. After returning to Melbourne, the Cosmic Ray Group made the cold condition field adjustments to their instrument arrays permanent, and began fabricating two more sets to this pattern, as Jacker and Gelbert would take the physicist slots at Heard Island, with Hines and Speedy heading to Macquarie, while Law conducted his measurements aboard the Wyatt Earp. The committee scheduled the LST, under the command of Lieutenant Commander George M. Dixon, to depart for Heard Island on the 7th of November. After landing its charges and returning for further materials and personnel, it would depart from Macquarie Island in January 1948, while the Wyatt Earp, commanded by Commander Carl Oom, previously experienced in Antarctic waters as hydrographer during the second Banzari voyage aboard the Discovery, reconnoitred further south. Neither Heard nor Macquarie Islands are much used from a maritime perspective. They feature no safe anchorages. They feature too much exciting topography to afford space for runways. They lie in the southern ocean latitudes where strong winds, big waves, low temperatures and heavy rains correlate and in some cases causate. The committee proposed their occupation in part to give the nation the southern ocean meteorological footing the weather forecasters wanted, but mostly to extend the perceived reach of Australian sovereignty. Each island station would house a cook, a diesel, three meteorologists, three radio operators, two physicists, a geologist, a surveyor and a medical officer. The personnel would receive a full complement of military surplus clothing and equipment. Single men would be paid 12 and 6 a day and married men 17 and 6 because this was pre-decimal Australia which worked on the British monetary system until 1966 at which point my nation stopped using pounds, shillings and pences because it was stupid. Short digression. 12 pence made a shilling, 20 shillings made a pound, 2 shillings were a florin, 10 shillings were a crown, and a half crown was 5 shillings, where even McDonald's manages to make that a quarter pounder. 1 pound and 1 shilling were a guinea. Even imperial measurement units hold greater internal coherence than the numismatic nonsense my nation inherited from Britain. George Smith recalled of the stores situation, The two of us were to set up this division to cope with the inward supply of goods to go south. We were told virtually nothing, we were given nothing, and we had nothing. We had a shed that was 120 foot long and about 30 foot wide and about 15 foot high, and there was absolutely nothing in it. So it was a case of scrounging. Across the road from us we had an old building that was full of tent pegs and mallets and mallet handles and so forth and I reckon between Stuart Campbell and Jones and myself, we ended up with more tent pegs, more mallets and so forth, 
than what the RAAF had in the end, because we worked on the basis that, well, if we can't use mallets, we can burn them. There is nothing down there, so take what we can get. It was just a matter of take everything you could lay your hands on. End quote. Smith, Jones, and Campbell's secretary, Trevor Heath, ordered everything the RAAF supply catalogues listed, often in large quantities, and stole, impounded, scrounged, or made crates out of every piece of wood and dunnage in Tottenham not already engaged as part of a building. Even some of that wood acting as part of the buildings went into the Inari service. The warehouses stood on wooden piles, each upright being braced by diagonal 2x4s. Very few such bracing pieces remained by the time the expedition got moving, and Smith expressed surprise the buildings remained standing. They're not standing there anymore, so perhaps they should have sourced further afield. Naval disposals provided warm clothing, a lot of it made of unscoured wool and smelling of lanolin. Scouring is the process of removing the greasy lanolin and perspiration salts from wool, but maritime clothing sometimes benefits from extra waterproofing provided by leaving the ovine body fluids in place. Originally sourced for Royal Navy crews operating in the North Sea and under the Atlantic, the Woolens arrived in Australia aboard Royal Navy ships operating in the Pacific, the Royal Navy crews unloading them onto the RAN books to open up space for goods more likely to prove useful in the fight to shrink the super-happy fun-time East Asia co-prosperity sphere in the tropics. A small number of US-made, 14-sided, prefabricated huts designed for signal corps use in Alaska, turned up at Tottenham after arriving in Brisbane in a wartime shipping era. War surplus Australian huts, designed for RAAF use in the tropics, were needed to fill the gaps in the station accommodation schedule. The Army supplied landing pontoons. Tinned and dried foodstuffs began accumulating from the Naval Procurement's office, enough to keep each island's personnel fed for 15 months. McRobertson's came through with the free chocolate once more, and also supplied the large tins in which their nuts arrived from South America, and these went south for service as toilets. Commonwealth oil refineries supplied free fuel. People began accumulating too. The overwinter teams headed to Ballarat to train in their roles under the RAAF School of Radio. Returning to Tottenham, George and Norm kitted everyone out with their hodgepodge array of military surplus clothing. The Federal Government put forward £50,000 for the refit of the Wyatt Earp, and the Royal Australian Navy began the work at its Adelaide Yard. In addition to a lot of caulking below the waterline, the ship received a proper diesel engine in place of the hot bulb affair that carried Lincoln Ellsworth's voyages south, and an echo sounder, and a gyro compass, and a radar unit. The bridge moved forward to allow more accommodations aft, and new decking replaced that worn out by a quarter century of use, and new standing rigging, comprising two masts and affording a much greater area of sail than before, went into the government-funded mix. The increased sail area, estimated to provide as much as two extra knots with fair winds, also offered scope to decrease the roll rate of the tubby little vessel, noted by those who sailed in Wyatt Earp during its Wangali years as unpleasantly fast. The relaunch and commissioning took on a ceremonial air through the attendance of South Australian Governor Sir Willoughby Norrie and Australia's most recognisable Antarctican, 
Sir Douglas Mawson. It took on a farcical air when the ship slid down the slip, crossed the Torrens River, stern first, and bashed into a tramp steamer moored up on the far side. An inauspicious start to a new commission. LST-3501 received its refit at Cockatoo Naval Dockyards in Sydney, the main adaptation to Antarctic conditions being a coat of yellow paint, the better to show up against the snow. The Wyatt Earp departed Adelaide on the 13th of December. Rough seas encountered during the transit to Melbourne boded ill for its time in the Southern Ocean. Waves breaking over the decks poured into the forecastle and the after accommodations, forcing the crew to bail to stay at the top of the sea. The new rig might have decreased the roll rate of the round cross-section hull, but the ship still provided a deeply unpleasant ride, with newly minted mariner Philip Law discovering his susceptibility to terrible seasickness for the first time. Law became so crook that Captain Oom recommended he disembark in Melbourne and not chance his hand on the Southern Ocean, but Law was a stubborn bugger and wouldn't quit. On reaching Melbourne, the ship went into dry dock in Williamstown for further work, and we'll get back to them in a bit. The Heard Island overwinterers gradually coalesced in Melbourne, individuals kitting out at the Tottenham warehouse and lending a hand in the packing process. Tottenham depot activity served as a team consolidation exercise and afforded expeditioners some insight into what got packed where, making the unloading and unpacking process a little easier at the island end of affairs. Until the last day before departure, trucks loaded with Heard Island materials departed Tottenham for Station Pier, where the wharfies loaded the LST-3501 and nicked a large quotient of the booze and McRobertson's donated chocolate. The LST received War Surplus Landing Craft Vehicle Personnel, LCVPs, smaller, bluff-bowed, flat-keeled motorboats of the kind featured in the opening sequences of Saving Private Ryan, and a Caterpillar D4 bulldozer with Laterno tilt dozer blade, and a winch, and the associated V-shaped overhead framing. All vehicles and auxiliary vessels received the expedition standard coat of yellow paint. The LST also received a Supermarine Walrus, the last of the types still in the RAAF books. Reginald Mitchell, designer of the far more famous and numerous Spitfire, designed this single-engine biplane flying boat to act as a naval spotter plane. Carried all folded up by battleships on top of their gun turrets, a walrus was pulled out of its hangar, unfurled in the mode of naval airframes nearly taken out of storage, loaded onto a trolley on a track, and booted into the air by a gun-cotton charge, in much the same way as the Dornier Wiles aboard the Lufthansa catapult ships, when the fleet needed an over-the-horizon perspective. Walrus acted as the eyes of their parent ship, observing the fall of shot of naval guns and signalling adjustments to the gunnery control network. Battleships' dominance of naval affairs fell away in the face of carrier-borne air power during the Second World War. Well, it fell away earlier than that, but admirals outside of Japan didn't want to acknowledge that and kept their battleships to the fore where they looked impressive. But the growing importance of aircraft carriers meant the walrus' main occupation during the war became search and rescue. The aircraft excelled in this, as its extremely strong design I have read that a walrus could execute an inverse loop, which is hard to believe when you examine the nest of struts and wires constituting its wings and engine mount 
allowed it to land and take off in sea states that put most larger flying boats away on their delicate toes. War surplus walrus served in tourism, as spotters for whaling fleets, and in this instance, in Antarctic territorial surveying. A little. More on that in a bit. The LST craned its bright yellow walrus, nicknamed Snow Goose, aboard and into the cradle built to fit its planing hull shape, wings folded to its sides and wire stays holding it firm to the deck. Add a couple of unpowered landing barges in among the ship's usual coterie of lighters and motor launchers, also painted yellow, and LST-3501's deck space began to fill up. It still featured enough space that ship surgeon Peter Blacksland shipped his MG sports car for use between Fremantle and Perth in the final port call before heading south, and Anari medical officer Alan Gilchrist brought aboard his Indian motorcycle for use at Heard Island. The ship departed Melbourne on the 17th of November and sailed west for Fremantle, the port city near Perth. While out that way, the LST craned the snow goose back on the water for a final shakedown flight, the flying boat taking off and alighting to leeward of Rottnest Island. LST-3501 sailed from Frio on the 28th of November, three weeks later than originally planned, and crewed by 112 officers and ratings, and carrying 22 expeditioners, 14 of them forming the Heard Island over Winter Party, making southwest at 10 knots. The Heard Island over Winter Party comprised Orb Gottley, a senior meteorologist and forecaster and party leader, Lewis Lem Macy, senior radio operator, John Abbott-Smith, engineer, ski expert and alpine dog team driver, Alan Gilchrist, medical officer and ersatz biologist, John Gelbart and Fred Jacker as physicists, Alan Campbell-Drury as radio operator, Arthur Scholes as radio operator and photographer, Norm Jones as cook, Swampy Compton as General Hand, Bob Dovers as Surveyor, a former Army Commando officer and the son of George Dovers, the Surveyor who sailed with Mawson in the AAE and who spent his time ashore at Western Base under Frank Wilde, Jim Lambeth as Geologist, Shorty Carroll taking Met Obs, and Keith York as Radio Sonde Specialist. The Southern Ocean didn't care about Stuart Campbell's assertion that the LSTC worthiness lay beyond criticism. A week out of Fremantle, the ship experienced a gale. Lieutenant Commander Dixon recorded, quote, Seeing is believing the way an LST can bend. The whole structure quivers like a springboard after a diver has jumped off. The decks bend in ripples like a caterpillar in progress. Bulkheads pant with a loud banging noise as the ship gathers for another attack. And so it goes on, making sleep out of the question. End quote. It's a known fact that I like segmented animals. The crustacea are the tagmatory business, and the polychaetes are my ride-or-die phylum. But I don't want my ships to act like a caterpillar. Ever. A bit of flex is okay. A bit of give lets a hull bend where it might otherwise break. But the thought of LST-3501 conforming to the waves it tried to sail through makes me seasick while sitting at my desk. Say no to bendy-keeled boats. 
The Southern Ocean gave the LST the full racking out, with the officers on watch gazing up at the wave crests above them from a bridge already 11 metres above sea level. The engines oversped as the screws lifted clear of the water whenever the plunging bow transmitted a particularly energetic waveform along the hull. The flexing keel opened up a crack in the decking just forward of the accommodation block. The crack reached a metre long and looked set to span the vessel as the motion of the ocean worked its weak point as a fulcrum in the ship's longitudinal axis. The regular expansion and contraction ruled out welding the hole closed, and likely so too did the salt water and spilt avgas. So the ship's engineer set to work with a drill, applying a Meccano workaround to imminent doom. Holes drilled in the deck and in a steel plate set to act as a patch saved all hands. I'll hand the narrative to Arthur Scholes for the explanation. Quote, when all the holes were drilled, everybody stood by. The people under the bulkhead were ready with the nuts, and the sailors up on top had the bolts ready to drop into the holes when they lined up. And when we were down in the trough of a wave, they banged in the bolts and they had the nuts on the bolts from underneath before we hit the top of the wave again. Then they tightened them up and stopped the crack from developing right across the boat and breaking it in half. End quote. I should mention here that several LSTs of the same design did crack in half and sink with all hands during Atlantic crossings during the war. So it's not a stretch to comment that the first Denari 4A very nearly ended in disaster, but for the efforts of an excellent engineer and a number of his crewmates, working with a feverish intensity honed sharp by existential dread. Four days on, with the waves subsiding but still big, steel plates flexing on the hull sides let seawater into one of the fuel tanks and the engines stopped, leaving LST-3501 wallowing in big seas. The ship fell silent and the lights blinked out. Without headway, the LST lost steerage and turned broadside to the swell. The gyro compass went out, but that being the motif of the voyage, it likely came as a surprise to no one. 40 minutes, LST-3501 lay beam on to the 40-foot waves. The emergency lighting system sparked up, presaging a return to powered vessel status as the engineers sorted out the oil feed problem and worked the engines back to life. It was mere luck that the stoppage didn't happen earlier, when the larger waves would have sunk the lot. I say that sort of thing a lot in this series, but that doesn't make it hyperbole or drama. Lots of ships sink. Lots of people died, wishing X component held together till dawn, or that Y storm struck just a little later. We don't know their stories, because the people involved took them with them when they died. The fact that we do know this one may make my making a big deal of the narrowness of the particular gates of fate LST-3501 passed through seem a tad over the top. But John King Davis was correct. The LST was no match for the Southern Ocean, and that Campbell got his men to herd Ireland and back again constituted a matter of luck, not a matter of sound judgment. The excitement wasn't over. One of the landing pontoons got loose forward and slewed from side to side until all available hands made it fast through the use of blocks and tackles and muscles all available feet slipping in the oil-slicked, constantly awash deck. 
the rogue pontoon staved in the planking on two of the smaller boats, leaving one of them a write-off. Quoting Shoals again, As the bows plunged into the dark cavernous trough of the wave, we clutched for dear life at the nearest solid object. A loose grip on the sliding deck, and the man would have been overboard before his companions could lift a finger to help him. Rolling cold steel drums back into alignment was hard work in ordinary weather. With hail and clouds of freezing spray beating our faces, the job was backbreaking. Before the bows smashed into a big coma, there would be a brief warning. Here it comes, boys. Hang on. Hang on. Someone would yell. We crouched low behind the pontoons and drums, grabbing anything we could grip with our cold fingers. Once I paused, in the middle of heaving on a drum, my stomach muscles exhausted with strain. I glanced at the rising and plunging bows. It was an awe-inspiring sight. Magnificent yet dreadful. Great mountains of turbulent water lay ahead. Down in the trough, the water surrounded the ship like the grey walls of a prison. The water walls were higher than the funnel. Forty feet of solid water. Tons and tons of water waiting to deluge the deck and sweep away everything in its path. We worked with the energy born of despair. It was incredible the landing ship could ride such waves. Some were so high, it appeared inevitable we would be flattened and crushed by the weight of water. Each time the ship rode again to meet the challenge, fighting every inch of the way. The way the ship rode those seas stirred the men to renewed efforts. It was as though they felt there was something underneath the deck, fighting for them. The ship had a great heart, a fighting heart. Everyone who could lend a hand was on the foredeck, exposed to the full force of the storm. For anxious seconds, the ship would reel and stagger, the deck sliding into the sea. It was in these moments my stomach went to pieces, and I dared not look at the sea around us. I worked on blindly with the others. Like a boxer rising at the count of nine, the ship would shake herself at the last moment, face up and right herself for the next attack. So it went on. Numbed awkward hands, frozen and hail-battered faces, soaked bodies and exhausted muscles. The ordeal lasted more than an hour, until the last drum and the pontoons were secured. End quote. On the 11th of December, the peak of the Heard Island volcano Big Ben, appeared above the horizon. Forming a neat symmetry with the poetry of the mountain's name, one of the Inari team described it as looking like a big ice cream cone. Campbell originally intended landing his charges at Spit Bay, the physicists having figured the eastern side of Big Ben as offering better radio transmission and reception. But a sudden drop in the barometer prompted Lieutenant Commander Dixon to weigh anchor and stand offshore, getting out of dodge shortly before the wind came around and fog shrouded the island. The ship rounded Cape Lawrence, entering Atlas Cove, the nearest thing heard island offers to a sheltered harbour, as the weather settled and an LCVP put out to take a party ashore. The smaller vessel's bow ramp went down as the keel came onto the hard, but those aboard still faced waist-deep wading to make the steep shore. This first party made an inspection of the Admiralty Emergency Depot Hut, erected to aid stranded mariners in 1927, 
and used as accommodation by the Banzari members during their stay at the island. The following day, the LST worked down the east coast of the island, but heavy surf at Spit prevented its close examination as a potential station site. On the 13th, after five hours of preparation to get the engine block warmed and the oil desludgified, Flight Lieutenant Mal Smith taxied the walrus Snow Goose over the water in Atlas Cove, carrying aloft Warrant Officer Peter Swan to take still images, Warrant Officer C. Dunlop as radio operator, and David Eastman to film the flight. Smith took off and headed east, clear weather affording a rare, unobstructed view of Big Ben. Climbing to 10,000 feet, those on board the Snow Goose realised the mountain's apparent top, previously estimated at 7,500 feet, gave way to a secondary peak, appearing to rise at least another 1,000 feet above the walrus present altitude. Quoting Smith, who's quoted in Shoals, I never thought it was possible to see such a magnificent sight as that mountain. From the top we saw white everywhere we looked. We had been climbing all the way, flying over the great valleys and the rocky ridges which run down the mountainside. By the time we were taking to climb, I knew the mountain must be higher than we had been told. When the cockpit was level with the top of the dome, the altimeter read 10,000 feet, but that was nothing. We saw another peak about a thousand feet higher. It was mostly hidden by clouds, but we could see the top sticking up like a pimple. End quote. They didn't get the opportunity to measure it, as a lowering cloud base back at Atlas Cove prompted a call to return before fog socked the bay in and prevented a safe landing anywhere useful. After an hour and a half in the air, Smith taxied the snow goose ashore and the airmen tied the airframe down to the concrete blocks and rocks. Surveyor Dovers bet Pilot Smith a quid that the mountains didn't rise to 10,000 feet, but the matter never resolved in the time the aviators spent at Herder Island, Big Ben never again showing that much of its peak to those living on its sea-level skirts before the LST departed. The LCVPs proved difficult to launch from the LST's davits. Their large size and heavy weight made lowering on blocks a troubling affair, with the barges buoyed by water one moment and hanging from the falls as a wave trough passed below. Getting both blocks off or back on to the lifting bridles at the same time became paramount, as an LCVP suspended at only one end threatened to turf all aboard into the water and then hold them under the water as the waves worked their motion and dropped the hull on top of the unfortunate surprise swimmers. Engines broke down, welded seams opened up, and steering systems failed. Manufactured in a hurry, and only expected to last long enough to serve their wartime purpose, the Higgins boats didn't respond well to the challenges of Antarctic operations, in spite of their coating of yellow paint. Spit Bay proved too swell-prone to serve as a base site. The LST anchored up, dragged anchors, headed offshore, moved inshore, anchored up, and dragged anchors, and it became tiresome, so Campbell and Dixon nixed the idea before anyone landed any stores in the problematic LCVPs. The LST attempted a herd island circumnavigation, the sonar running continuously to generate the first echo-based hydrographic data made in the herd island offing.
The weather turned as the ship reached Red Island near Heard Island's northernmost tip, and heavy fog obscured the land. Unable to see to survey, and uncomfortable traversing a lee shore in ship weather, Commander Dixon pulled the pin, and the LST never completed a full circuit of Heard Island that austral summer. Stuart Campbell led a camping party to Windy City at the eastern end of Atlas Cove to measure tides and to assess water supply as a prelude to selecting a station site, the LCVPs working ashore using kedge anchors. Tents went up but fell down again because the volcanic gravel proved too loose to hold tent pegs, so dead men comprising wooden planks buried in the sediment went down and the tent erectors laced the guys around them. Seeing the LST heading out to sea, saw the nine members of the shore party hunkered down for a big blow, six of them bunking in the Admiralty hut, and the other three sleeping in the cramped confines of the walrus, as a sixty-knot gale covered the island hinterland with fresh snow. Windy City, while close to fresh water, proved too windy to serve as the base site, though as its name only arose after their occupation, I can't blame Campbell for his optimism in assessing the site. The exposed rocks at Windy City featured sharply scoured faces corresponding to the three directions of prevailing winds. These three-sided barographs didn't make any sense to anyone until after the night of the 20th, more of which shortly, when the camping party's tent shredded and the miserable campers huddled in the lee of their stores cases as the hurricane expended itself. Group Captain Campbell eventually selected a site near the Admiralty Hut as suitably level and near the Atlas Cove shore, to make as good a place for the research station as Heard Island seemed likely to offer up, though the dearth of fresh water and surfeit of elephant seals made it less than ideal. Unloading began. Two days later. The army pontoons proved unusable in the swells reaching in the Atlas Cove shore, and one of the station radios received sufficient damage in the pontoon-based attempt to land it that the crew gave the game away as likely to leave the winterers too little usable materials and stores. The LCVPs similarly left a lot to be desired. Leaking badly and only able to reach a helpful unloading position when barely carrying any cargo. Lieutenant Commander Dixon bit the bullet and beached the LST. In spite of the design's shallow draft and flat keel, the Atlas Cove shore rose too steeply to unload the heavy goods without them disappearing underwater straight off the end of the unloading ramp protruding from between the ship's bow doors. With the ship as high up on the hard as Lieutenant Commander Dixon could push it, a six-foot channel still separated the furthest reach of the unloading ramp from dry ground. All available hands turned to to put as much of her to island below the tide in as short a time as possible. Footage of the frantic attempt to bring the shore to the ship shows dozens of punters picking up cobble-sized geology and lobbing or yeeting, as the youngsters are all saying, them into the sea. I'm sure this had some effect, but watching footage of John Abbott-Smith drive the D4 ashore still provides some concerning moments, as the machine dips its hull into the brine to the top of the Caterpillar tracks. With the D4 ashore, other heavy goods traversed the Heard Island defensive moat under a cable tow made of the bulldozer's winch, though again, they look to get soggier with the salt-laden herbal infusion that is seawater than is generally considered good for most non-marine machinery. 
Abbotsford dozed a trail between the landing site and the station site through the tussocks, and the misery of hand unloading commenced. 300 drums of fuel went ashore individually, under human power, and I'm confident the novelty of the coldness and the wetness and the uphillness fell away after each individual's 12th or 13th 44-gallon drums worth. Sailors formed a human chain and passed crates of food up the shore hand to hand. The ship's carpenter made wooden sledges to carry bulk loads of fuel drums behind the bulldozer, speeding progress and easing the human misery. Gilchrist landed his motorcycle over a dodgy gangway of planking, threading the needle at speed only to come a cropper at the first tussock mound, at which the bike stopped and he flew onward over the handlebars though he seemed happy to note himself as the first motorcyclist in the Antarctic. At the end of this frantic day of unloading, Orb Gottley warned the barometer was dropping again, and Lieutenant Commander Dixon made ready to reverse the ship off the shore. The LST slid seaward, but went aground by the stern. The bow swung about this pivot point and also stuck fast on a rock. Lying broadside to the shore with the gale on the way is bad news in any vessel, let alone one prone to bending and cracking, so the crew worked hard to resolve the situation. Commander Dixon tried to recall the repaired workboat, off taking soundings. The ship's siren sounded, but the boat didn't move. More siren work, and still no response. A signaller morsed, Why the hell don't you come alongside, with an Aldous lamp? blinking light from the workboat responded, We can't. The engine's fucked. The crew aboard the balked workboat got the motor working and worked the LST's bower and stern anchors offshore, hoping to find sufficient benthic purchase to allow the ship to catch itself out of trouble, but this didn't work. Instead, a turn in the tide combined with a slight easing in the wind saw the ship float gently clear of the obstructions just in time to make a safe anchorage offshore as the gale hit. Another narrow squeak. Ten minutes more broadside along the shore, and LST-3501 would have become so much yellow wreckage on the beach, and the Atlas Cove accommodations would need expanding so as to cope with a hundred extra punters. Stuart Campbell and Len Macy erected a post office tent and began cancelling mail addressed to recipients in all nations, part of the Australian government's Everybody else is doing it, so philately, program. 4,000 letters, mostly from philatelists to themselves, received the Heard Island franking in this far-flung bastion of Australian administration. Weather issues prevented further flights in the week after Smith first got the Snow Goose airborne. Then a single weather issue prevented further flights for good. On the night of the 20th of December, the same hurricane-strength winds that nixed Windy City as a station site once and for all, and that saw LST-3501 drag its anchors for three miles and in danger of ending up on the shore, buffeted the large, lightweight machine against its tie-downs. As Gottlieb's barograph tried to measure an atmospheric pressure so low its penarm fell off the bottom of the drum chart on which it recorded the kilopascals, either the tie-downs or the parts of the airframe they attached to broke and the walrus bowled along the beach, rolling over twice, wrapping itself in what were once its wings, and smashing a dinghy hauled ashore to leeward of the aircraft. Jacker and Gelbart salvaged radio equipment from the wreckage as a source of spare valves for their cosmic ray instruments, 
but everything else that once made it a flying machine broke beyond utility. With both LCVPs out of action and the scows and pontoons proving too much for the workboat to tow safely into the shore break, Dixon beached the LST twice more, completing the unloading by Christmas. Christmas dinner at the Atlas Cove shore site comprised a tin each per person of sausages, Christmas pudding and apricots. Savage wartime leftovers from cans, but hot and nourishing after taxing weeks getting the Heard Island party on site. The anaconda hour that usually follows a large and hearty feed only stretched to the 15 minute mark when the workboat broke off its mooring and headed for shore, prompting much running about and wading to prevent its wrecking. That the wind pushed the workboat hard enough to break an inch and a half thick steel cable prompted a rethink about keeping the vessel handy through the winter. With no sheltered water to keep it out of strong winds and large swells, its wrecking seemed inevitable. On the 26th of December, Campbell led the expeditioners in the sort of claiming ceremony he derided during his time under Mawson. Raise a flag, read a proclamation, bury a copy of the proclamation in a brass cylinder beneath the flagstaff, record it all in the ship's log, write press releases about it, couching the events in terms geared to give an impression that Australia's claim to all the territory marked as Australian on Australian maps and charts is already really strongly incorporated into the Australian aegis. The claim incorporated the nearby Macdonald Islands, though no landings or flag raisings or cylinder burials took place there. The ship's workboat went back aboard, its half-cabin torn from its uprights and its propeller damaged while swinging from the derrick. The walrus, Snow Goose, remained on the beach, wrapped in its own wings. It remained there until 1980, when a national mapping survey expedition aboard the MV Cape Pillar collected what remained, loaded it aboard a lark, craned the lark aboard the ship, and returned the bits to Point Cook, by then the site of the RAAF Museum. Over the course of two decades, the conservator Lamies bent what was left back into shape, sourced spare bits, fabricated the bits they couldn't source, and brought the snow goose back to factory fresh status skinning the starboard lower wing with transparent plastic of some sort, so you can see the intricacies of struts and ribs and bracing wires within. It's on display just up the road from my place. Come visit, and I'll take you to see it. LST-3501 departed Heard Island on the 29th, leaving the 14 winterers and Stuart Campbell to get on with station construction. The LST sailed to the Kerguelen's, going alongside the wharf at the abandoned whaling station after carefully negotiating the still active sea mines sown in the approaches to thwart Nazi merchant raider ships during the war. More 44-gallon drums of fuel went ashore to await the Wyatt Earp on its return leg northward. Footage of the unload shows the job as far easier than that at Heard Island, those involved using the whaling station wharf's trolley rails to roll the cargo to the depot site. Some off-duty personnel tried their hand at hunting the local ducks and introduced rabbits, the prodigious numbers of both making even the crappiest shot successful. Commander Dixon boasted bringing down eight ducks with a single shot because of the density of the flocks wheeling overhead. Meanwhile, at Heard Island, 
Camping among the tussocks proved uncomfortably damp, to be expected in such damp habitat on a damp island, and nerve-wracking on account of the elephant seals transiting through and wallowing in the area. Three tons of blubbery seal would make short, soggy, flattened work of a tent and its occupants. The seals didn't heed arm-waving or yelling, and even fire didn't deter them, so Lem Macy and Alan Campbell Drury rigged an electric cattle prod and powered it with the battery from Gilchrist's motorcycle. While monkeys and flames didn't register with the seals, the electric shocks did, and the device did the Heard Island party sterling service while the 14-sided huts went up. Concrete slabs went down, and walls arose around them. The completion of the radio hut offered the reason and the opportunity for a celebration, and the men packed the small area of dry for New Year's Eve out of the Heard Island rain. A week later, the residents ran a quick headcount after hearing a knock on the hut door during another torrential downpour. Who could it be? Turns out, it was Lieutenant Commander Dixon, soaked to the skin and on orders from Australia to collect Stuart Campbell, as the Wyatt Earp's truncated voyage, more of which anon, ruled out its collecting him on its way north. Campbell, halfway to bedding down for the night in his tent, thought the news delivered by Lem Macy, must be an attempt at a joke, and he told the younger man to go to blazes. Macy wouldn't let it drop, and Campbell eventually headed to the hut where he found the freshly reclothed commander holding forth on the good hunting he enjoyed at the Kerglands. The following morning, Campbell handed the station over to Orb Gottley and accompanied Lieutenant Commander Dixon out to the LST. Macy, who'd loaned Dixon his dry woolen undergarments, called the ship on the radio and requested their return. The apologetic Dixon apologised, turned the ship around and lobbed the garments over the side attached to a buoy when he figured the currents and tide would see them ashore, before once more setting course northeast. Macy awaited his underpants stoically as the buoy bobbed them slowly ashore, only expressing dismay that the skipper didn't wash them before their return. I'll leave the Heard Islanders there for the moment, as the Macquarie Island contingent have been waiting patiently for me to give the start of their adventure some attention. Back in Port Phillip, the LST went into the Williamstown dry dock for repairs on the 18th of January, while the Macquarie Island contingent packed their stores and materials at Tottenham. The overwinter party comprised Alan Martin, a senior meteorologist and officer in charge, Carl de Troyes as cook, Peter King as radio operator, Jeff Motorshead, or Motorshed, or Motorshed, as another radio operator, Gersh Major as radio physicist, Charlie Scoble as engineer, Ron Kenny as marine biologist, R. Chatter as another meteorologist, Norman Laird as photographer, William Monkhouse as another meteorologist, Dr. R. Bennett as medical officer, Lee Speedy and Ken Hines as Cosray physicists, and F. Keating as a second engineer. The difficulties experienced with the pontoons and LCVPs at Heard Island prompted Australian Army Captain Laurie Stook to put a suggestion to his superiors that the role might be better served by Army Ducks. And I pronounced that with a W at the end because it's an acronym, or whatever an acronym would be if the letters weren't the initials of the words it represents. In General Motors' notation regarding their wartime production vehicles, D equals 1942 year of design, 
U equals utility, K equals all-wheel drive, and W equals twin rear axles. So it's a six-wheel drive. But wait, there's more. The Duck featured a boatish hull, high gunnelled sides, and a propeller shaft and propeller sticking out the back, making it amphibious. Where the Larks, presently used by the Australian Antarctic Division, are boats that can drive onto land, Ducks are trucks that are almost waterproof. And that shows in footage of these vehicles during water operations. A fully loaded duck looks dangerously close to going down at the first good swamping over the small remaining freeboard, and they don't ply the waters so much as wallow vaguely shoreward. Stook received a reprimand from his superiors for suggesting the army might do something maritime better than the navy, but the idea percolated through the back channels and eventually received some love from someone who placed practicalities ahead of inter-service rivalry, kicking off a near 50-year association between Inari and the Australian Army Amphibious Vehicle Squadrons. Two ducks went aboard LST-3501 to supplement the LCVPs. The turnaround schedule precluded getting all the repair welding done, and the ship set south again on the 3rd of March, still leaking more than's good for a seagoing vessel. LST-3501 reached Buckles Bay on the 7th, after a smooth crossing of the Tasman Plateau. The pre-selected site on the Isthmus connecting Wireless Hill to the rest of Macquarie Island presented shitty landings from either side. The LST couldn't approach in any weather without further holding itself on the submerged rocks guarding the shoreline. An LCVP made a scouting foray, sounding the water as it went, and landing a shore party at Garden Bay. Macquarie Island OIC, Alan Martin, led his team to the former AAE hut, missing its roof, and the sealers' huts. Selecting the former as the less seal-infested and therefore more promising position for the research station. Stook drove the first duck off the LST, a nerve tester of an operation as the ship's bow rose and fell three metres on the swell. Reversing the large truck out through the bow doors and off the loading ramp at just the moment as to not see the vehicle go end over end and sink to the bottom required some thought and a steady hand at the steering wheel. Once afloat, Stook went alongside the LST and received the first of many loads of cargo, starting with tents and emergency supplies, as someone with foresight foresaw the ship weighing anchor and departing Buckles Bay at the hurry-up on the regular. The shore party got to shoveling seal and bird shit out of the AAE hut and re-roofed it with a tarpaulin to serve as a temporary residence. While Stook found a safe approach for the ducks, the LCVPs couldn't reach the beach. Instead, the sealers rigged an endless rope. A mooring buoy, 200 yards offshore, formed one end of the system, and a loop of wire rope connected this to a pulley mounted on the beach. Charlie Scoble drove the D4 bulldozer ashore from as near as an LCVP could get it, and this provided the motive power for the system. An LCVP would tow a pontoon to the buoy, the crew would switch the tow over the cable loop, and Scoble would apply the D4 to tow the pontoon and its cargo to the beach. Once unloaded, the pontoon returned to the buoy on the reverse side of the circuit. One of the LCVPs foundered, its prop fouled on the Davilia bull kelp and caught broadside by the waves while awaiting a tow to safety. The D4 and the ducks churned the peat soil of the isthmus to mud, 
regularly bogging down and towing one another out of trouble. Hut work kicked off, with a 14-sided US Army Signal Corps hut taking the sheltered space previously occupied by the newly dismantled AAE edifice, and Chippy's Church, a unit fabricated from scrap wood by the ship's carpenter, went up next door. Tim Bowden noted in The Silence Calling in 1997 that Chippy's Church remained in use as a hydroponics centre. Hater Rock, a tiny expanse awash on the low tide, received its name when bosun Elf Hater stepped ashore there to escape his sinking LCVP. Jack Cunningham manoeuvred his duck nearby, but the Navy man didn't want to bar the floating truck and refused to make the jump. Cunningham lightened his vessel by unloading the shorebound stores back aboard the LST, returning to Hater Rock in the near dark as the weather turned nasty. The bosun stepped aboard, having changed his mind on the merits of army vehicles, and with his voice near gone, what with the profanity he unleashed while awaiting rescue. Eight goats and thirty sheep, live ones, went ashore to see if they could survive in Macquarie Island weather while feeding on Macquarie Island greenery. Anari leadership, hoping to make the station self-sufficient on the meat front into the future. This may strike listeners as odd, given how many seals and seabirds went into the pot to sustain Antarcticans in previous expeditions. But Macquarie Island became a wildlife sanctuary in 1919, based on the Tasmanian government refusing to issue new sealing licences, largely at Sir Douglas Mawson's urging. The seal populations were gaining ground on their sealing-era deficits by this point in history, but the Inari weren't allowed to take advantage of this readily available protein source. The Wyatt Earp arrived on the 20th of March 1948, which prompts me to go back in time to rejoin that wooden ship in Melbourne in December 1947, as it went in for repairs at Williamstown. Navy fitters made good on what damage the transit from Adelaide wreaked on the small ship, and modified what they could to make the accommodations less leaky. The ship went back on the water on the 18th of December. The Wyatt Earp received an RAAF war surplus Kingfisher seaplane for its aerial reconnaissance needs. Another catapult-launched fleet spotter design, the US company Vought opted for a monoplane airframe mounted on a single central float, but stuck with a single engine motif so when painted yellow, it was almost indistinguishable from the walrus taken to Heard Island. Winterizing for the Kingfisher comprised an internal engine warming unit taken from a Martin Mariner flying boat. It took some Heath Robinsoning to get the unit to fit the far smaller engine nacelle, but it made the aircraft far easier to make flight ready than its walrus counterpart. The RAAF assigned Robin Gray and, and T.W. Liddell as aircrew, and R.D. Jones as mechanic for the aircraft. With its full Antarctic complement aboard, the Wyatt Earp departed Melbourne on the 19th. It exited Port Phillip Heads into a Force 10 storm from the east in Bass Strait, a notorious stretch of water lying between Tasmania and mainland Australia, where the confluence of shallow water, strong currents and roaring 40s winds offer all that's worst in open water operations. Captain Oom hove to in the lee of Flinders Island, but the ship received a sufficient Bass Strait bashing to warrant a visit to Hobart for further repairs, arriving there on the 22nd of December. The Wyatt Earp departed again on the 26th, but stopped after an hour because of engine trouble. 
The voyagers reached the Tasman Sea eight hours on and a Force 9 gale hit them, forcing Captain Oon to shelter behind Eddystone Rock, the Tasmanian one, not the one off Cornwall, though every possible point is behind every other possible point, theoretically. On the 30th, the engines stopped to allow repairs to a fuel pump, and then the engineer, Freddie Irwin, called for low revs when the bearing in the grommet through which the prop shaft exited the hull ran hot. This turned out to be from the new engine sinking on its bed and bending the prop shaft, the resulting torsion under load expressing itself as heat in the critical moving parts. As the Wyatt Earp approached the convergence on the 1st of January, engineer Irwin loosened the stern grommet to ease the heating issue, but this resulted in more sea than usual entering the bilges. As the tide rose past the engine room decking, the naval board back in Australia ordered Captain Oom to return to Melbourne for repairs. The Wyatt Earp went about and steamed north at reduced pace, reaching Port Phillip once more on the 7th of January, with the austral summer clock ticking loudly. Even disassembled, the Vought Kingfisher took up a lot of deck space and made the use of hatches and the movement of stores difficult, so when the Wyatt Earp prepared for its next stint in the dry dock, the RAAF personnel assembled their steed, the ship's crew lowered it over the side, and it flew off to Point Cook for the duration of repairs. This process wasn't easy on any front, and Stuart Campbell later conceded that the Inari should have stumped for a smaller, lighter design of aircraft, of the kind the ship carried as scout while under Sir Hubert Wilkins' direction. Free is good, but can set undesirable limitations. The already amended voyage plan received further amendments, and Stuart Campbell, recently returned from his Heard Island adventures, joined the ship's complement. The Wyatt Earp began post-dry dock sea trials on the 6th of February 1948. Deemed less catastrophically dangerous than when it arrived, the ship collected its Kingfisher float plane and headed down the bay on the 7th, running extremely late and unable to run faster to catch up with itself. The Earp passed icebergs on the 18th of February, crossed the Antarctic Circle on the 20th and reached the outer edge of the pack later that day. Captain Oom seemed reluctant to put the bluff-bowed herring boat to task entering the pack, demonstrating its unsuitability for the task with a single ramming run at an ice floe. The ship bounced off, shaking fit to fall apart, while the ice remained unscathed. The Wyatt Earp could not reach Commonwealth Bay. With the continent out of reach, the Kingfisher formed the only means to extend any kind of Australian ownership magic over the land the nation claimed, but the difficulty experienced assembling and launching the airframe in the sheltered waters of Port Phillip made Captain Oom unwilling to put in the hard yards in the Southern Ocean. On the 22nd of February, Flight Lieutenant Robin Gray convinced the mariner to give it a go, as it might prove the key to finding an open lead, and the RAAF personnel once more set to work assembling their machine, though it was three weeks before the weather and ice afforded suitable conditions for a flight. Meanwhile, Determined not to hang about and spend a winter frozen in, Captain Oom turned the ship east on the 27th of February, sailing for the Balleny Islands to investigate possible sites for a meteorological station. On the 29th, the ship's whaler afforded Stuart Campbell, Philip Law and Seaman Wallace a brief landing on the islands. The ship managed a running survey of the group, 
but otherwise achieved little for the week spent on task. The ship headed west once more. While nearest the Ninus Glacier Tongue on the 13th of March, the ship's crew lowered the Kingfisher from the Wyatt Earp. Gray took Mechanic Jones aloft for the first flight. With a cloud base of 1,500 feet and nothing to see but icebergs and floes, they returned to the ship after an hour. Gray made a second flight with Lawrence Leguay aboard to make an aerial photographic record of their presence. The Kingfisher went aboard once more and remained dismantled until the ship returned to Port Phillip. Oom gave up on achieving anything useful in the area on the 16th of March and turned the Wyatt Earp north, setting course for Macquarie Island. Following seas saw the little ship achieve record lateral departures from upright and an engine failure saw it achieve an accidental speed record when a backing wind and large following swell filled the fore trysail and propelled the Earp to 10 knots in spite of the sea anchor holding the entire ensemble stern to wind. The Wyatt Earp joined LST 3501 at Buckles Bay on the 20th of March. I'm going to leave the island operations there for the moment, but I will mention that the Wyatt Earp didn't remain in Inari service because it was pants. The Navy paid the ship off in Melbourne and sold it to a cargo service. Re-re-re-renamed Wangala, it sailed between Victorian and Tasmanian ports, before another sail and another renaming saw it operating up the East Australian coast as the Notoni. The Notoni sprang a bad leak in a storm off the coast of Queensland in 1959, sailed into shelter in Rainbow Bay, dragged her anchors, went aground off the Mudlow Rocks, and broke up. All 18 crew made it ashore on the hatch covers, but the Funafjord, Wyatt Earp, Wangala, Wyatt Earp, Wangala, Natoni saga came to an end. LST 3501 continued to service the island research stations under the name HMAS Labuan, receiving the new name in late 1948 in memory of Australian actions against the Japanese at Labuan Island off the coast of Borneo. After two further visits to Macquarie and three further visits to Heard Island, HMAS Labuan received damage on a Heard Island shore in 1951 that saw the ship break down en route back to Australia, requiring a tow to Fremantle. The Navy paid the Labuan off, and scrappers bought and scrapped it in 1955. I'm going to leave off the history there for this episode, but we'll return to the Heard Island and Macquarie Island over winter parties, and Australia's continuing efforts to get a research station on the continent, ere long. Big thanks to everyone who contributed to my wife's funding campaign for her pie van. I've no idea when this will actually publish, or where she got to with it, but your contributions were heartening. Big warm fuzzies at this end, I assure you. Callum G released his 16-minute video Love Affair with Thomas Poulter's Snow Cruiser two years ago. His work is always well-researched, and this effort is rich with original footage I've never seen before. YouTuber Callum's enthusiasm for this strange machine makes for infectious YouTube watching, and he recently released a follow-up video addressing the most common questions he receives regarding Thomas Poulter's design and the present whereabouts of the snow cruiser and its attendant beach staggering. While you're about it, watch his equivalent treatment of the latter and far more successful Karchov Chanka, similarly proportioned and tasked Soviet tracked vehicles that did what the snow cruiser didn't, which is to say cruise over the snow. These machines still operate today, 
and are slated to receive audio attention in future episodes of this series. Links to Callum's videos in the episode notes. While it's going to date this episode more than my anachronistic colloquialisms and opinions, I need to speak to the coronavirus situation we faced when I wrote the script. I'm grateful to everyone who followed the lockdown rules, who masked up, and who got vaccinated. I'm grateful at a community level, but also personally. My mother is immunocompromised to the point infection with the coronavirus would likely kill her. Protecting our community from the sorts of infection rates and death tolls experienced elsewhere came at a cost, but my mother living for another year is one of the benefits that arose from that cost. People are quick to set the price of a human life low when it's not their own or that of someone they love, but every human life is worth what the individual living it thinks it's worth, and in most cases, that's a whole lot. When arguing the balance between economy and death toll, don't allow yourself to play with abstractions. Treat it as a matter of life and death for people you care about. Things might not play out that way personally, for you, but they will for someone, and we should keep that in mind when banging on about not liking wearing masks and resenting not attending sporting events. There is a balance point. We will open up, and some of us will die as a result of infections resulting from that. Everything comes at a cost. Please keep the benefits in mind when counting that cost. One of them was my mother enjoying another year in the company of the man she loves, and another was sharing my life and the life of her grandchildren with her for that additional year, albeit mostly by phone and mail. How much is that worth? To her, it's worth the entire universe that will end when she dies. For me, it's worth a whole lot. Finally, oink oink, I'm so glad I decided not to accept advertising dollars so I don't have to say dumb stuff or promote products I don't use or services I don't have the time to look into in order to check their value and unspoken costs. I still say dumb stuff, but it's on my terms and never part of a must-read in someone's advertising copy. Take care and appreciate your coffee and I still consider that Carthage should be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham is an abuser and best avoided.